If you were not with us last evening, uh, we looked at verses 14 through 27. Mark chapter 9, and I will read again verses 14 all the way down through verse 29. When they came back to the, disi- uh, when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out. And they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything... Take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. And when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Maybe you noticed last evening that we did not study verses 28 and 29, and that was intentional. Because this morning we're going to devote our time to these two verses. We remember that this is a story about unbelief, unfaithfulness. And we saw that this man was, was plagued by unbelief as he suffered year after year the crushing weight of his son's condition. And in the midst of his unbelief, as he brings his son to Christ, and as Christ is standing before him, he says to him, if you can, he says, if, to the Savior, the Sovereign. But this morning, we need to look at the unbelief of somebody else. There are two parts to this story, the, the unbelief of this man, and as we will see this morning, the unbelief of the disciples. It's important for us to remember that Jesus was away up on the mountain where he was transfigured, where Peter, James, and John saw the glory of Jesus Christ, the majesty, the weight of Jesus Christ. But the other disciples, the other nine, had been left down at the mountain, and they are having this argument with the Pharisees, who are or the scribes who are now attacking them in their character because of their inability. They are probably being accused of, of being uh, of liars, of hypocrites, of charlatans. 
And it is exactly at this moment that Jesus returns and he finds them arguing these things. Look again at the problem and how powerful this spirit was in verse 22. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. And we saw that the goal of this demon was to destroy this, this child. Uh, it was interesting. I appreciated this last night. Maria came up and she asked me, why did the demon want to destroy him? And, the, and I think the biblical answer is that that is the very nature of Satan. He came to steal and to kill and to destroy. There is nothing in him that desires to take anything of good and of value and to make it and to use it the way it ought to be used. We were one time up into the north in the country, in the Czech Republic, uh, outside of a city called Yechin, a beautiful place, and a beautiful village. And uh, we came upon this building that was just in shatters. It was just shattered. It was just ruined. And uh, the people told us that a few years ago, this had been a brand new, basically, apartment complex. Beautiful place. And had been built by the government. It had been built by the government for a group of people And they were given this building scot-free, able to live there, no rent, no utilities. All they had to do was live there and to take care of it. And in a couple years, they completely destroyed the thing. All the windows were totally broken. Uh, The facade, how can you you destroy a facade? The facade was just, just flaking off of the walls. The yard was just destroyed. There was no yard left. The trees had just been chopped down. These people just destroyed the place. Here's the nature of Satan. He is indwelling. He has a place to live. And yet his desire is to destroy his dwelling, his abode. He wants to destroy this boy. It throws him to the ground. It wants to crush him. Throws him into the water. It wants to drown him. Throws him into the fire. It wants to burn him. And the Greek verb, as we talked about last night, just describes this demon just seeking to, to pulverize this boy. And in this fight, the boy begins to foam at the mouth. There's a fight between the boy and the demon. He's describing what happens. And finally, the disciples, you know, at the beginning walk in. And and this man, after wrestling with with the son and these demons for all of these years, has before him someone who can help him. Nine men whose fame has gone out throughout all the country. Nine men who have become famous for healing, casting out demons, even raising the dead. And they failed. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. They could not. They could not manage it. They could not handle it. And again, the reason that this is somewhat shocking for the disciples is that they had been doing these things. I think you're already in this text, maybe Mark 3, 14 through 15. Jesus appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And then in chapter 6, verse 7 and verse 13, it says, He summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So the disciples should be in their element. This is something that they should be able to handle. They have power. They have the authority. They have the ability. They have the willingness. 
But now they've come into a situation and the power is just not working. The batteries are dry. And the question is, why could they not handle it? Why did they fail? This is the same question that the disciples were asking. In verse 28, after this whole event, they come back to the house. His disciples begin questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? They're puzzled. This one defeated him. And Jesus explains to them why in verse 29. He said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Prayer was the key. Prayer was the solution. And essentially he says that the reason that they failed in their attempt to cast it out was that they failed to pray. And so this morning, my desire is that we would be taught about prayer. I understand that most messages on prayer make us feel guilty. Most messages on prayer leave us feeling kind of beat up. And I don't promise that this morning will be any different. (laughs) Because the real problem that Jesus is getting at is the reason that we're so unfaithful in prayer is because we're so unbelieving. We're so weak in prayer because we're so confident in ourselves. We're so confident in our abilities. We're so confident in our giftedness. We're so confident in our (laughs) intellect and everything. Saints, you guys, (laughs) Cornerstone is a, (laughs) how many doctors are here? Harvard grad, Princeton grads, TMS grads, doctors and lawyers, and, and there's so much intelligence and ability in this room. And yet, that's what so often becomes our downfall. That we're so capable. And yet, when we look back on our lives, we begin to see so much failure. What went wrong? I think one of the reasons is here this morning that our unbelief is manifested in our failure to pray. So look at this small verse. Jesus says, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. And so from this story, point number one, from this story this morning, we learned that prayer is essential. Prayer is essential. He says it's so plain and so simple. They failed in power because they failed to pray. We've done this so many times. I've done this with my eyes closed. And yet they failed. This story is about unbelief. The father was unbelieving. And the disciples, as we see, were actually unbelieving. Their unbelief maybe was not as as active as this man's unbelief. He he literally, before Christ, he doubted the power of Christ. He says to Christ, if you can... It was not subtle. But there's a subtleness to the unbelief of the disciples. It is a more passive approach. They failed to pray. They trusted in themselves. They relied on their own ability and assumed that they were able to handle this problem without the Lord. And when Jesus says that this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. I don't think that he's implying that there are demons that they could handle without the power of God. (laughs) The only reason that they had ever cast out any demon 
was because they had been given power and authority from God. Now just think about it this morning. I mean, you, just, you need to understand, these guys, they're just totally normal guys. They're fishermen, they're tax collectors, they've never seen anything, you know, incredibly powerful, you know. And one day, they meet Jesus, and a year later, they have power to do supernatural things. Now, what would you do? How would you respond if you could walk down the streets of Ontario and cast out demons? Man, it would be crazy. You wouldn't sleep for days. You would travel everywhere. You would go everywhere. You would cast out as many demons as you can. You would heal as many people as you can. You would be thrilled and floored that you had such power. And you would be mindful that this power is not my own. People would be asking you, what? Where did you get this power? And you would say, it's Christ. Let me explain to you who I am. I'm nothing. I want to share the gospel with you. I want to show you the source of this power, this ability. It's not in me. You would give all the glory to Jesus Christ. But after a while, like we've all experienced, the beginning of the Christian life on fire, filled with thankfulness, filled with faithfulness, filled with belief. And after a while, fire dies down. You get used to the power. You get used to the Christian life. And unbelief begins to creep in. And that's what's going on with the disciples They have become accustomed to the power of God. And I think they're taking it for granted. In Matthew's account of this same story, we get a few extra details. Matthew 17, 19 through 20, we read, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. From this account, we learn that in this context, their unbelief was manifested and their failure to pray. We might say, to use James's words, that faith without prayer is dead. Prayer manifests our unbelief in ourselves and our belief in God. George Mueller overused illustration, but one that I think is so fitting. This man had seen so much gospel work. He had seen so many people come to Christ. He had seen God provide for his children, his orphans, in supernatural ways. And yet in his life were these five men, and and they would not listen to the gospel. Their hearts were hardened. And so in a moment of just recognizing the inability of his own self to explain to these men, to win them over, he decided, I'm going to pray every day for these men. And he did. He began to pray. He prayed for the souls of his friends every day. And after five years of fervent prayer, the first one was converted. After another five years of praying for the next man, every single day, ten years later, this man came to Christ. After 20 years, the fourth repented. This fifth man, who wanted nothing to do with the faith of George Mueller, after George died, repented and came to Christ. George didn't even share the gospel with him. All he did was pray and pray and pray. Brothers and sisters, we could say metaphorically, the demon was cast out by prayer. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And so this morning, we had, we, as we begin, we need to understand prayer is essential. Prayer is essential. 
And we understand, secondly, that prayer is sufficient. Prayer is sufficient. Jesus says to his disciples that the simple means to complete this seemingly impossible task was to pray. He does not say that they needed to fast. Some of your translations may have that. It's not in the original. He does not say that they needed to pray all night long. He does not say that they needed to build an altar and lay a sacrifice upon it and gas themselves till the blood was flowing down. His answer is so simplistic. One thing is necessary. Prayer. Mueller prayed for 50 years and God heard. Brothers and sisters, Do we pray? What are the trials that you're facing? What are the difficulties that you're facing? The Lord Jesus would have us come this morning and evaluate our lives and ask, are we praying? Now, my sermon sounds almost elementary. Maybe I'm offending you with my seemingly... I've oversimplified your, your, your troubles. I've oversimplified your trials and your difficulties. But see, that's the point. That prayer is so elementary that it's almost too, too easy to believe. It's so simple, almost so insignificant, that we just don't want to believe it. And like children, we need constant reminders of the simple things that we need to do. I remember eight years ago when you know Lydia was just two years old and we were in the the little toddler years, and we're at the table trying to teach her, you know, to keep the food somewhat in the bowl. You know how it is. You get done with dinner, and there's food in the hair, and there's food everywhere. There's no food on the plate. It's everywhere else. And so we were just teaching her the very basics of table manners. Lean and bite, right? Lean and bite. In that order. Not bite and then lean. Lean and bite. So easy and yet so hard. Pray, trust and pray. So easy, so easy to follow, so easy to understand, yet so hard to obey. And brothers and sisters, the reason that we don't pray, the reason that we don't abide in prayer is because we don't trust God and we trust in ourselves. Jesus says in these verses and these words and in his words to the disciples that the means to be unburdened and the means to receive the power and the grace that we need is to pray. And I think it's important for us to remember, I think Peter carried these words with him through his life. He came to understand these words later on in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6-7, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Humble yourselves and cast your anxiety upon him. Peter understand that what kept him from prayer was pride. What kept him from prayer was that he trusted in himself. And I think that he learned this lesson. He learned this lesson. He had been humbled so many times by his own prayer I'm sorry, by his own pride. 
by his own failure, and now he's become a man of prayer. And the reason that we often fail to be able to carry the burdens, to be able to endure the trials that the Lord has set before us, is because we're not faithful in believing in prayer. Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by means of prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made made known to God. Prayer is sufficient. Prayer is necessary. Prayer is what we need. Thirdly, though, prayer is difficult. Prayer is a paradox. It is so easy to do. Even a child can do it. You don't need to be a speaker of the house or a lawyer. You don't need to be a preacher or a pastor. You don't have to get out of the car. You don't have to get out of bed. Prayer is so easy. It is. Out of all the things in the Christian life, it is probably the most basic thing that we could do. And yet it is also, at the same time, one of the most difficult I just want to remind you of what Jesus tells us in Matthew 26, 36-41. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is grieved, deeply grieved, to the point of death. Remain here and keep Watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Brothers and sisters, From Mark 9 and from this text, we see that prayer is difficult. It is hard to pray. One hour, 60 minutes of being focused and faithful in prayer, and they couldn't manage it. I mean, how often have we sat down in front of the TV or we sat down in front of Facebook, and after an hour or two hours, we're like, oh my goodness, I just wasted like this much time, whatever. But we start off in prayer, and we're like, Looking at the watch, 10 minutes feels like three hours. Why? The flesh is weak. I know we're willing. That's why you're there. That's why you're in your room. That's why you're on your knees. And, but Christ knows that prayer is difficult. And that's why he says to the disciples to keep watch. To keep watch, it was the command given to the night watchman. It was his job to stand on the rampart to stand on the castle walls and to keep watch. And if an enemy's coming, he yells it out. Here comes the enemy. Here comes the Romans. And Jesus says to his disciples, you keep watch. If that man on his watch fell asleep, what happened to him? They killed him. He would be put to death. In more lenient cases, he would be, he would be whipped and filleted. Because his falling asleep could result in the destruction of the entire city. 
If he falls asleep and does not alert the rest of the city, does not allow the army to prepare for the defense, the entire city could be invaded and demolished. All because this man fell asleep and did not keep watch. Christ says, keep watch. He understands it's hard to pray. He understands we fall asleep in prayer. How many times have we failed to pray because we know it's so hard to work, it's so hard to be faithful, it's so hard to stay alert. And Jesus understands that. And I think it's important, you know, um, I'm a missionary. If I'm not a man of prayer, I'm just, just utterly disqualified. And I'll be honest with you, I, I do pray. I do pray. And I fall asleep. I fail. There's times I give up, I give in. And I think that praying is it's learning, it's a process. You have to fight hard to learn to pray. Can I just share with you just a few things that I have learned and a few things I've implemented into my own Christian life over the years just to try to be alert? The first thing that I've sought to do personally is to fix a time for prayer. If we treat prayer as an appendix, if we treat prayer as something that we'll just do when we have time, we will not pray. And so one of the first things that we need to do as we're seeking to learn to keep watch and to practice belief is that we need to simply set a time to say, I'm going to pray. We know when we're going to eat breakfast. We know when we're going to eat lunch. We have a schedule for so many things, but we must schedule time in prayer. If it means that you need to get up earlier, they need to get up earlier. But if you're going to do that, it means you need to go to bed earlier. Uh, I think you understand with me that it is just as hard to go to bed early as it is to get up early. Isn't it? But so often the reason that we can't get up early is because we haven't gone to bed early. We know that, as we say, you know, for church on Sunday mornings, Sunday morning, when does Sunday morning begin? Saturday night. Brothers and sisters, you know when Monday morning begins? Sunday night. If you're going to get up and spend time with the Lord before work, and some of you guys got to get up early, talking to R.E., man, that guy, he, he lives in Alaska. It's like light all the time. You know, he gets up, or I should say dark all the time. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. He gets up early. He gets up early. Look, some of you guys, you got to drive two hours. If you're going to get up and spend time with the Lord in prayer, you're going to have to get to bed early. You're going to have to buffet your bodies. You're going to have to make them your slaves. Apply this principle, buffet yourself, fix a time to pray. If it means on your lunch break, going out into the car, sitting in the car, turning it on, letting the AC go, sit in your car for 15 minutes to pray. Fix a time to pray and make that your time and guard it and watch it. Another important thing I think to do is, is not simply saying that uh, you're going to pray and not just simply sitting there but another principle that's helped me is to pray out loud. Uh, to pray out loud. I find it far easier to pray out loud. In fact, I find it far more difficult to fall asleep when I'm praying out loud. Just think about it. When you're, when you're in a conversation with someone, what are you doing? You're speaking. You, know, you don't just sit there and have nonverbal communication and say, oh, that was a sweet meeting. 
you sit there and you're talking and you're communicating. And I know it's silly, but it, it, I think it's, there's a principle there. When we talk to God, you, when you're just quiet in your mind, what's coming in? There's 10 billion things that are seeking to, to, to vie for your attention. So many things at work, so many difficulties, so many trials. And so you, you sit down to pray, and 10 minutes go by, and you're like, I haven't said a word to the Lord. But if you're praying out loud, it's so much more difficult to be distracted. And so pray, pray out loud. Find a room. I know, again, this is difficult, but find a room. Right? Find a room where it's just you're by yourself, and you can just talk to yourself. People are going to come by. They're going to think you're crazy. They're going to think you're weird. That's okay. But you can talk to the Lord, and you can pray. Another thing that I've found to be helpful is to, to take a walk. Right? Just to take a walk in the beautiful forests of Los Angeles. Right? I know it's difficult. Again, I understand. But it's possible. Right? I had a circuit in Downey just to walk down to the park and just to walk around or just to walk down by the goalies and just to do a circuit and to take my list I got my list here. I got some of your names on here to pray for you. That's another thing I should say is make a list. Make a list. Make a list of those people, those men and women that you must pray for. And take that list with you. Put it in your coat. Put it in your wallet. And you can take a walk at lunch, which you can get up in the morning or before bed. You can pull it out and to pray. Now, brothers and sisters, we, we must keep watch we must keep watch it is impossible for those men to stay awake all night long if they just sit down they put their staff down they lay back they lay down on the, on the stones if that man thinks that he's going to stay awake he's a fool and the next thing he's going to see when he wakes up is the guillotine the only way to stay alert in prayer is to buffet our bodies and to implement even childish measures to buffet ourselves. Prayer is difficult, but it is possible. And it's so necessary because prayer, point number four, prayer is powerful. Christ says, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. I think it's important to understand that Jesus cast this demon out, but he says, I think essentially, you would have been successful by the means of prayer. And here we see the power of prayer. Prayer is powerful. King David said in Psalm 116, I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my supplications. Because He has inclined His ear to me, therefore I shall call upon Him as long as I live. God heard Him. God delivered Him. God answered Him. God loved this man. And brothers and sisters, God proves His love to us. He proves his care for us. He proves his concern for us by hearing our prayers and by answering them. It is the desire of the Father's heart to incline his ear to you. To be available to you at any moment as someone who he does not slumber. He does not sleep. He is constantly keeping watch over your souls. And his ear and his heart is available at every time. If you had the opportunity to implore the President of the United States to ask him anything that you wanted. How long would you wait? 
If your son was on death row and all you needed to do was to beseech the president and he would grant you pardon, how long would you wait? If you had to travel across the country, if you had to travel from from Ontario all the way to Washington, D.C., in order to state your case to the President of the United States and to know that with those words, he would grant you your pardon. How long would you wait? Brothers and sisters, nothing would stop you. Nothing would get in your way. If you had no money, you would charge that credit card and you would buy as much gas as necessary. You would stay in as many hotels as necessary to get over there and to get your petitions answered. Brothers and sisters, you need to do nothing before God. You need to travel nowhere. You need to stand where you are and deliver your heart to the Father. And He will hear you. His heart is inclined to you. It is not simply that His heart is inclined to you, but that even His ability is in disposition is, is there for you. One of the things that I find myself so often doing in my Christian life is talking about my problems to so many people. How many times have I spent just minutes and hours talking with this other person, sharing my difficulties with them, or other people just talking with me, sharing their difficulties with me. And brothers and sisters, those things, that's good. We need to share. We need to have fellowship. But in the end, I can do nothing. I can do nothing to help people. And people so often can do nothing to help me. And yet, we're so slow to go to the Father who has the ability and the desire. We can go to Him and speak our difficulties to Him. And He will hear our cries. He will hear our prayers. You don't have to spend an hour with Him even but to go to him in childlike faith, to confess even your unbelief, to confess your need, and the Lord will hear. You know, as a missionary, there there are, I can share with you, there are a lot of missionary stories. We have seen the Lord provide in so many ways. Any seminary student, you know, the things you go through, we have seen God provide in so many ways. And one of of my George Mueller stories, and I, I would like to share it, is a George Mueller story was in 2001. Uh, we had just finished an English camp, and um, Peter Smith got a call from another missionary whose English camp team got stopped in Amsterdam because they didn't have visas. They were Canadians, got sent back to Canada, and this guy has an English camp starting on Saturday, and he has three teachers. He calls up Peter and says, look, you guys just finished your camp. Can you send your people over to do our camp? He says, sure. We got on the train. We drive over. Or take the train over. The problem is that we had to go back to the States with our plane tickets were scheduled. We only had three days at the camp. So we did our three days. During that time, uh, Peter got on the phone, and he was talking with uh, the people at the front desk. Can you change these tickets? And they're like, yeah, no problem, $1,000 per ticket, right? And that, Peter's like, that's not acceptable. Can I talk to somebody higher up? Can moving up the ranks? Three days comes to an end. No answer. Uh, we get on the train. <clears throat> we're going back to, um, or we get in the cars. We go back to the train station. It's an hour drive. We get there. We buy our tickets. And uh, Peter's talking on the phone from Prague to the missionary who's right next to us. 
And Peter's like, it's just not working. I can't change your tickets. Finally, Peter gets on the phone right before this, and he ends up talking to the president of Lufthansa in the Czech Republic. And he says, look, buddy, we've got 10 Americans here. They have come all the way. They have spent all of their money, their own vacation time, all this stuff. They have come here free of charge to teach people English. These people have subsidized this camp so that these Czechs can learn better English so they can work in the airlines for you. Can you change their tickets? And guy said, sure. Like that, change the tickets. We're standing on the platform waiting for the train. Peter calls and says, don't get on the train. We got back in the cars, went back to the English camp. Everybody's crying. Great story. Right. Peter didn't just stand there for eight hours talking to the lady at the counter who's just saying, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. But he went to the source. He went to the president. He went to the big cheese, and he got what he needed. We can go to Christ. We can go to the boss. We can go to him who has all sovereign power. They're standing there before this demon. We can't do it. What's wrong? First guy tries it. Can't do it. Second guy tries it. Nine guys, all failures. What's the problem? Everyone's talking to the demon. Everyone's talking to the guy. Everyone's like, what's the problem? What does it do? What are the symptoms? Like, what do you think we should do? What do you think we should do? No one's gone to God. If they would have gone to God, problem solved. Prayer is powerful because we are talking with the sovereign God of the universe. And brothers and sisters, again, this is why prayer is about faith. We cannot see him. We cannot see him. We cannot hear him. We cannot fill him. We walk by faith. We walk by faith. Therefore, we watch in prayer. Prayer is not only powerful, but number five, prayer is effective. There was only one solution to this problem, and it was prayer. Jesus says that prayer was the singular solution, and by this guarantees its effectiveness. If they would have prayed, they would have been effective in their ministry. I'm wrestling with this illustration, but I will share it. Um, it's dangerous to use yourself as an illustration, so it's not, it's not an illustration so much about myself. But when we got to the, to the church there, <clears throat> it, was, um, it was hanging on. The Smiths had been so faithful. They had faced so much hardship. They had labored so hard for 13 years. And when the Lord called them back, we stepped into the church, and we, we knew so we knew hardly any Czech. We were stepping in there and preaching every Sunday in English. Daniel's translating. And, and then a year later, a uh, year and a half later, the church just gets totally gutted um, as, as by the grace of God, people that shouldn't have been there were leaving. And there were days when there was like two people in the church. And we're just not making much headway. You know, we're struggling with the language. It's discouraging at times. And we just began to pray. Even as a church, we just started, we began to gather every Sunday to pray. And I showed you the picture of Milan, you know, the, the big man with the beard. His wife was so vile, so evil. I mean, she was, she was so vulgar and ungodly. And she would call Milan sometimes. We'd be at lunch after church, and she, he would pick up the phone, and I would hear her screaming through the phone at her husband. She hated the church. And we began to pray for this woman, praying for her soul. And in less than a year, 
this ungodly woman was radically converted. This woman came to church and she's sitting right there listening to the gospel, weeping, crying, praying. And then the next Sunday, she's bringing food and she's serving people and she's caring for people and people are like, who is this woman? I didn't do anything. Milan didn't do anything. The Lord did it all. It was so effective. And this woman, this woman's daughter, we went, she's in major, major financial chaos and difficulty. And long story, I mean, they lost everything they had. They lost everything. House, car, everything. They lost it all. And in the middle of this, she finally said she would hear us share the gospel. So we go to her house, we try to share the gospel with her, didn't want to hear it. All she wanted to do was tell us about her problems. Only thing we did that night when we left was we left her the Bible on CD. That week, she listened to the entire Bible on CD and was regenerated. A year later, her husband, an atheist, got saved. He's a cook in a restaurant. He, he's, he's uneducated. He's a nobody, really. His boss, a wealthy man, owns lots of land, lots of restaurants. He comes in weekly and sits there. Peter cooks for him, and Peter shares the gospel with this guy. I told you about Irina and Tona's grandma. I mean, almost everybody in the church is a first-generation believer. Our church is made up of people who they are not from Christian families. They didn't know Christ. They didn't know the gospel. They weren't raised in church. They were atheists, and God has saved them. And we look back, and, and I really look back, and I, I, I believe the pinpoint is when we really began to fervently seek the Lord in prayer. It was not, it was barely viable. It was like, is this going to work? And yet, as we sought the Lord as a body, God has been so faithful, and we have seen his power, because prayer is powerful. Let me close with the last point. Prayer brings glory to God. You remember what we looked at last night? Jesus comes down and he finds the disciples arguing. And the argument was over the fact that they could not cast out the demon and the scribes began to use this as an argument against them that they were frauds, they were fakes. And that as disciples they reflected the hypocrisy of their master. And brothers and sisters, what happened because of their failure to pray is that God was not glorified. God was not honored. This man's son was not healed and he did not leave glorifying God at this moment. The disciples failed to pray and God was not glorified. But brothers and sisters, the heart of prayer is that God would be glorified. If we truly desire God to be glorified, we will pray. In fact, we could say that. To the extent that we truly desire to see God honored and glorified is to the extent that we're in prayer. It is easy to sing. It is easy to talk. It is easy to preach about wanting to glorify God. If we truly want to see God glorified, we will pray. John Piper has often said that the greatest ethical challenge for the Christian is to live in such a way that man sees our good works and they glorify who? Our Father in heaven. Think about that. To live in such a way, to live your lives, and the the world is watching. 
And instead of giving the glory to you, instead of giving the glory to man, they would give honor and praise to God. Prayer brings glory to God. Because as the Christian lives, he will live in such a way that the world will look upon and they will not have no answer. They will not be able to comprehend why you're doing what you're doing. Because what happens, brothers and sisters, what happens when you accomplish works in your own flesh and your own strength? What happens? We become more proud. We become more glorified in our own self. Prayer will keep us humble, and prayer will guarantee that the Father will get the glory and not man. This is why the first thing that Christ teaches us to pray is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. To pray in such a way that God would receive the glory. John Eliot was an Englishman. He sailed to America in 1631. And there in Boston, at the age of 27, he became a pastor of a growing church. Faithful man of God, faithful preacher. Congregation is growing. And every Sunday as he preached, he saw the congregation growing. He saw more and more people, you know, more English people coming and people getting saved, the church growing. Puritans are coming over. And then after Sunday, he would walk home and he would ride his horse home and he would, he would go by and he would see the Indians living in, some of them in squalor and poverty, animists, no Christ, no God, godless, damned, under the wrath of God. And then the following Sunday, he'd go back to his church and finally he just couldn't take it anymore. As he sits there with all these people who are saved and loving Jesus and all these Indians who are lost and damned. And he just began to pray for them and to pray for them and to pray for them, to pray that God would raise up someone to send. Well, God never raised up anyone to send. So he went himself. At the age of 40, he resigned from his pastorate after almost 15 years. He resigned from the pastorate and moved out to live with the Indians. 40 years old, to learn another language is not a good idea. It's hard enough to learn a Czech language at age 30. He moved into a language, there's no literature, there's no alphabet. He spent the first years there, that's all he did, was listening, listening. He followed them everywhere, listened to everything they said. He wrote an alphabet down, and then for two years, he spent two years translating the entire Bible. He translated the whole Bible in a matter of a couple years into this Indian language. After years of language study, after years of translation, he took the Bible up and he began to preach to the Indians. He is the only person in, in this this Algonquin tribe, hundreds of them, the only one who knows Jesus Christ. There's no one else, no one to translate, no one to preach, no one to minister. He's the only one. And so he begins to preach. And all he did was preach and pray. He would preach and he would go back to his tent and he would pray for years. And then after years of doing that, an Indian got saved and another one and another one, and another one. This man, John Eliot, did that for 45 years by himself. Nobody's writing biographies on him. No one's inviting him to big conferences. He was not important. Hardly anyone knew what he was doing. 
And for 40 years, 45 years of preaching and praying, at the end of 80, of those years when he was 84 years old, there were tribes filled with believing Indians. There were churches that were established throughout this Indian nation. There were raised up Indian preachers. This man gave his life for the gospel. And in the end, God received the glory. God did a massive work amongst these Indians. That instead of living for their fake gods, they were worshiping the Savior and living for Christ and preaching Christ. And God received all the glory to the fact that I would share this story this morning and God will receive the glory. Brothers and sisters, at the end at the end of the long line, at the end of long watch, at the end of a long life, you and I, we're going to be gone. We're a vapor. My life here, my ministry in the Czech Republic is a vapor. John's life, John's ministry here, your life, your existence, it's a vapor. No one is going to remember us. But so much is dependent upon what we do. So much is at stake with what we do with our lives. So much is at stake around us. The souls of men and women, they do not know Jesus Christ. And they will not come to him by any other means but the gospel and prayer. But the gospel and prayer will guarantee that in the end, God will receive the glory. So my question is elementary. Are you devoted to prayer? Do you pray? Do you walk in belief with God? Do you walk in dependence in prayer? Because prayer is about belief. Richard Trench was a famous Anglican preacher and he was a poet. He wrote a beautiful, beautiful poem. Lord, what a change with us one short hour spent in thy presence will prevail to make. What heavy burdens from our bosoms take. What parched fields refresh as with a shower. We kneel and all around us seems to lower. We rise in all the distant and the near. Stands forth in sunny outline, brave and clear. We kneel, how weak. We rise, how full of power. Why should we ever weak or heartless be? Why are we ever overborne with care, anxious or troubled, when with us is prayer? And joy and strength and courage are with thee. May the Lord give us grace to believe. May the Lord give us grace to be a people and a church of prayer. Amen. Dear Lord Jesus, we again ask you, as this man did, help our unbelief. We do believe. We do pray. We do love you. We do long for you to receive the glory. And yet, Lord, even with the confession of our obedience, there is this confession that we are so weak, we are so unwatchful so often. There is so much work to be done. And most of the time, Lord, we are so oblivious to it. We are so overwhelmed and so in our routine of everything you've called us to do. Even as a pastor and a missionary and a preacher, Lord, it is so easy for me to become distracted and, and to lose sight of the state of everyone else and the souls around us. Lord, we ask you to open our eyes. We ask you, Lord, to help us walk by faith. We ask you to help us be devoted to prayer. And we thank you that you will do so because we have prayed in your name. Amen.